Good evening, this is Neil Labute, and you're listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this program, we're going to talk with Elliot Pattison. He's the author of The King's Beast, A Mystery of the American Revolution. Interesting thing about him, he started his career as an international lawyer, and he traveled all over the world, and a trip to Tibet changed his life and his career forever. You've traveled pretty much every continent except for Antarctica. Is Antarctica next on the list? If <laughs> when the craziness dies down, yeah, it's on the bucket list. <laughs> One of your travels took you to uh, Tibet. What was it about um, Tibet? Tell me about that first time that you visited the country and and what impact did it have on you? So I went in after um, having studied Asian religion, especially Tibetan Buddhism, which had always interested me fairly significantly. Uh, and, I, and, I, and also having been a student of Asian history and a student of Chinese tradition. So I, I went in with that background and at first was blown away, amazed, you know, in a positive way because of the, the physical um, you know, reflection of the culture is still the physical reflection of the culture was at that time still mostly there. And so the old, there were still uh, quite a few old temples and you could see signs of the Tibetan civilization. And I, and I call it civilization very meaningfully because I do believe they had, a, you know, what was essentially a separate civilization from the Chinese. But then uh, the more I experienced it, you know, my amazement uh, turned to confusion, which then turned to outrage, confusion, because I realized that the, there are many, many examples, but the most poignant would be in temples, the, the Tibetan Buddhist monks were very, very closely shadowed by Chinese policemen everywhere they went. It was like one-on-one policemen with a billy club standing behind a Tibetan uh, monk who was simply sitting meditating. And then there would be spots where I would walk in and uh, they would see me, a foreigner, and they would tap all the monks on their shoulders with their billy clubs and push them out of the door because I had come in. At first, I was sort of like confused. But as I as I studied, you know, as I experienced more, but also studied more, read an awful lot more of, of Tibetan chronicles, firsthand chronicles of Tibetan, what you would I would now call survivors traditional Tibetans who, who were present during the initial Chinese occupation, I began to, to realize that this quite remarkable civilization was being systematically destroyed by a real sort of jackbooted tyranny out of Beijing. And I had written a lot of um, different kinds of nonfiction, legal treatises and a couple of business policy, business and policy books. I really wanted to try my hand at fiction at the same time, I wanted to tell the world about Tibet and what was going on, and I had this epiphany that I could write a, write a mystery set in Tibet that would, as a deep background, have the, the Tibetan culture present on the stage in the, in the course of a mystery being solved by a Chinese investigator. And that turned into the Skull Mantra, and you know, Skull Mantra won the Edgar Award that year. I had no idea how it was going to go. It's a very familiar story for starting, you know, struggling novelists uh, 
tried to place it myself and got rejections from every publisher, first the majors and the minors, but all of them rejecting. And with several comments for those who, who took the time to actually read some of the manuscript, I would get notes back saying nobody would be interested in, in Tibet. Sorry. Some would say, like, nobody's even heard of Tibet. Why would you write a, a, a mystery set there? Then I turned to an agent who, and I was very lucky, she loved it. And then she said immediately, I know exactly the right editor to send this to. Because, you know, an awful lot of publishing revolves around the, the views of an editor and the sponsorship of an editor. And so uh, in a few short weeks, I had a contract with, with uh, St. Martin's. And then in short order, won the Edgar and then a contract for more of the, of the books. Before too long, the books are being published in 20 languages around the world. What do you think is your biggest challenge? I mean, obviously, there are different stages where first you want to get published, and that's a whole challenge in itself. But now the place that you're at, do you still encounter challenges, and have they changed, and how do you overcome those? Most fundamentally, say it that way, the, mo- the biggest challenge is just the discipline. When I make appearances face-to-face with people, I almost always get the question of how, first, how often do you have novels? And I'll say one a year, and, and they're like, how could you possibly do that? My books are pretty complex. Reviews often talk about them being very densely plotted, which you take both ways, but I, you know, I sort of take pride in that. And I'll say, listen, it's discipline. And no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I spend two to three hours a day writing. And when I spend two to three hours a day writing, that gets me a novel a year. Can't just say, oh yeah, I'll write a couple hours a day and have a guaranteed success. I mean, there's a lot of other challenges about being a writer. And I'm reminded often of Mark Twain, you know, asked about the process of writing. And he said, it's all about finding the right word. And the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. <laughs> and so I probably appreciate that even more after years of writing fiction. When I go through a final edit of a piece, it's getting to that very precise word that works in terms of the character, you know, being authentic to the character who's speaking and, and, you know, in the scene that's being described. And the English language is extremely rich. And and, uh, it's a great pleasure when you know you did find that right word. You said once that uh, the world we have created works against the preservation of culture, religion, and fundamental human values. And I think about that based on what you told me and what I've read about you in Tibet. When I was a lawyer in my professional career, I worked all over the world and advised governments and big corporations and actually advised the Chinese government. I had a lot of experience with the Chinese government. Uh, as well as a lot of other governments uh, in Europe and South America. And so I think I have a sort of better than average understanding of the global economy and and global legal structures and and the way uh, governments work around the world and and relate to each other across oceans, as it were. You know, to put it in a nutshell, as somebody who also tracks, you know, observes and writes about uh, human rights, We've allowed material things and financial goals to to preempt everything else, including human rights and fundamental freedom. And I think there's a no better example of this than what happened this winter with the, with basketball and China, where the people in Hong Kong were protesting, asserting their fundamental freedom against some some measures of tyranny, 
even waving American flags, and I, you know, and I'm not trying to be jingle whisker, you know, about American flags, but I mean, you know, as a symbol of freedom, they were, they were waving these flags. And the general manager of the Houston basketball team, I think he gave a tweet supporting the people of Hong Kong, and the Chinese government went berserk, and the NBA was all over him, and other players in the NBA all over him, criticizing him because they they didn't want China to pull back on all the base all the basketball coverage they were providing, and the and the, the big the NBA actually has a schedule of games in the in, in China, and this is and, and to abbreviate conversations I've had through in recent years in a lot of places, it's like, isn't it, you know, I'll describe um, the terrible things going on in Tibet or sometimes in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs who are, you know, being thrown into a gulag prison system and, you know, just north of Tibet by the Chinese government. And people will say, oh, that's really awful. We need to do something about China. But, you know, the answer is, yeah, but I really like my cheap tennis shoes. I really like my jeans, designer jeans that are made in China. That's distilling a lot of a lot of perceptions, but that's what it comes down to. I think we need to recalibrate. What's going on right, right now with the pandemic may be pushing recalibration both in the U.S. and and uh, in Europe around these sort of issues. Is this a recurring theme within your work? It's absolutely a theme, and I'm actually just finishing up a, a essay post for um, Crime Reads, which is on the role of dying cultures uh, in in uh, crime novels. Every novel, and I've done 17, as I mentioned, every one of them features a dying culture, features, and, and, and that implicitly means features human rights that have been trod on by a stronger power, whether it's China versus the Tibetans or China versus traditional Chinese, because my main character in the Shan books is a very traditional Confucian type Chinese detective, and he's been crushed as well. His family was destroyed by the regime in Beijing. So it's not just the Tibetans. And then in my 18th century books, we have the slaves, African slaves, but also there were people don't focus much on this these you know in, in our in our history books, but there were Native American slaves, a lot of them, especially in the in the late 1600s and early 1700s. And there were a lot of Scottish slaves who were sent over as indentured servants, servants, but wound up basically being treated like slaves very often, especially if they went to the South. Uh, conspicuous in, the, in this series are the Native Americans and what's happening to them in the mid-18th century and the Highland Scots. And the Scots and the Native Americans are experiencing a very similar destruction, a lot of parallels of destruction of their culture. My books use that as a backdrop, and I believe that the genre of historical fiction and especially historical crime novels provide a really, really great palette for painting those pictures and, you know, and developing those themes. Why did you become, should I say, obsessed with the 18th century? I would just say I have an, a, a normal curiosity, and everybody else has sort of lost their curiosity, because I, but, uh, I think the 18th century is very, very important for, for all of us. When I was young, my parents would take us to many, many historic sites, including a lot of Revolutionary War sites. We would go to Valley Forge just about every summer and walk around. And so at an early age, I was very impressed with that history. And back in the day, when I was young, you could go to Independence Hall and hug the Liberty Bell, which I did many times. Today, you would be arrested. Wait, hold on. <laughs> but, that's, that's not why it cracked, is it? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was sque- I squeezed too tight one time. So I connected an awful lot with the 18th century history. I Where I lived as a boy, we had a lot of Native American artifacts available. Local farmers would show me and my friends where old campsites were, and you could sort of just like run a stick in the ground, make a furrow in the sandy soil, and you would almost always find some Indian artifact, some Native American artifact. And that was fascinating to me as well. Uh, and so at an early stage, I had this real sense of wonder about the 18th century. But then as I studied, as I became more of a student of history, I realized that the mid-18th century, 1750, 1755 onward, was really, truly a remarkable time in the history of, of, of mankind. There was this explosion of self-awareness, the expansion of printing and literacy. There was an explosion of printing presses. And suddenly people who never received newspapers, you know, people in small villages and out on farms, suddenly they had newspapers available, political tracts and religious tracts and the works of Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in fact, it's been demonstrated in many ways, the population of, of America, the American colonies was much more literary and much better read than the people of, of England. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about that. They read more books than, than people in Britain did. There was a huge explosion of, of what we would call science. Back then, they, would, they just called it natural philosophy. That's actually a very important theme and, and really even a plot line in, my, in the King's Beast in my new book. It's, it's very much about the interface between science and the establishment. And I say it that way because science became a very important, empowering dynamic for a lot of Americans and a lot of people that supported liberty in England. If you want to know more about that, read The King's Beast, because it, it's, it reflects it, I think, very well. There was a broad view in what, for shorthand purposes, I'll call the establishment, that scientific knowledge was something that was preserved for the king and the royalty and the, you know, the nobility, the, the, the upper, upper class. And that was true all over Europe, true in a lot of other cultures as well. In this book, I wanted to very much focus on the juxtaposition of scientific development and political development. And so I knew there were a lot of interesting things that were happening on, call it the scientific stage at that time. I was really astounded by how much. This is 1769. And I should mention these books are called Mysteries of the American Revolution because I really believed and I actually discovered that a number of prominent founding fathers said the same thing but only after I had been saying this in, in public appearances for a while, that the real revolution happened before the first shot was fired at Lexington and Concord. The minds and the hearts of the people were turned during the 1760s and the early 70s, 1770s. And that's very much a, a theme. So back on science, 1769, James Watt had, in that year, he obtained his first patent for a steam engine. If U.S. people when were steam engines developed? Almost everybody would say probably 1840 or 1850. I kind of remember that ships in the Civil War had steam engines, for example. But no, it's 1769. They had introduced steam and they were developing applications for steam engines to be used in mines in England. And people were already talking about trying to make machines that could be moved by steam power. Okay, you know, eventually locomotives. The Mason-Dixon line had just been completed, and, and this actually figures into my plot. I have a lot of scientific perspectives that come together in a very interesting, interesting way in this book. It was a lot of fun to write. There is the 
the Mason Dixon line, which you just completed, and Charles Mason, who who and and then I didn't realize this. Mason Dixon, I always thought it was some surveyors of the transit, and yeah, you know, like you shoot a straight line and you mark it, and then you shoot the next line and mark it. No. It was a four-year project, and they took celestial fixes every night. They did celestial navigation to be sure it was absolutely precise. And so there was a huge amount of mathematical calculation that went into the Mason-Dixon line. And in the course of this, they taught a number of Americans about astronomy. And so then... 1769 was a year when the transit of Venus occurred, which is the passage of the planet Venus visibly across the face of the sun. Nobody knew how far the sun was, and it was like one of the great quests of scholars in the, in the, seven, in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries to figure out how far away the sun was. And if you do, you know, the algebra, well, trigonometry comes into a geometry, a trigonometry, right? You can, you time it the Venus when it crosses the first edge of the sun, and then you take a fix when it crosses the, the, when it leaves the edge of the sun, and you can actually create a triangle and do the trigonometry calculations to come up with the distance. I mean, it's very complicated, but it's, you know, it's scientifically proven. And in 1769, the king had declared that he was going to find the distance to the sun. And it was, it was, you know, again, back on this point about the aristocracy controlling science. The king, for example, had built the built it still exists, an observatory, a rural observatory in what was Kew Gardens, just to observe the transit, because he was going to be the one to make the calculation. And he didn't get to do it. The weather wasn't great, and he didn't, you know, they didn't have all the right calculations. And, you know, so it was very important at the time. It was in the newspapers all the time, people talking about preparation for the transit of Venus. And gee, a bunch of these rebellious Americans, some of whom have been taught by Charles Mason about astronomy, said, we can do this. And Charles Mason, a poor guy, went back to London. And in talking about his accomplishment, he explained how he also was able to teach a lot of Americans about astronomy. And the the upper class went berserk over that. They thought that was terrible. And so Mason never got the accolades that he should have for the amazing work that he did. But the people that he trained in uh, mostly Philadelphia, and there are some very prominent names like Rittenhouse and Biddle who were involved in this, they were the ones who ultimately got the first calculation of the distance to the sun. And the king was furious. And so that's also part of this book. It's very interesting. It's true. It's all fact-based. You can look it up. They had to finally admit that some amateurs in Philadelphia and his world astronomer actually publicly gave a speech about this, that, you know, as amateurs in Philadelphia incredibly were able to, to calculate the distance to the sun. It was like a concession made. And, and people were quite angry in London, were quite angry that, that absurd Americans would do this. On the, on the other side of the Atlantic, the Americans got very, very excited. And it sort of was another facet, and there were many facets, to the new American autonomy. We can do this. We can do it. We're just as good in scholastic or scientific pursuits as the guys back in the court in London. And that sort of development, that sort of mentality, a progression of of perspectives, that was more than anything the revolution that caused our independence. That's really fascinating when you think about that. You know, a bunch of guys sitting around in Philadelphia came up with the idea that they would calculate the distance to the sun, and then they actually did it. It was a major recalibration in terms of the, 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 you know, the academic community, the scientific community of the time. You mentioned that Americans have become disconnected from human drama in our country's founding, and also that 
the textbooks seem to dehumanize history. How important is that to us as a culture? I think it's extremely important. And, and um, you know, there are many facets to this issue. First of all, the, the, um, you know, our formal educators, the, the, you know, our educational institutions have dramatically de-emphasized history. You could argue it, it started decades ago uh, when the federal government started to take over the formation of curriculum in local schools, and that was back in the Bush administration. History was quickly dropped from the core curriculum. And so in many schools, in high schools, history is, is an elective. It's not required. And the number of history courses available in colleges have gone dramatically down. There's different tests showing that eighth graders know more about American history than uh, high school graduates. And high school graduates know more about American history than college graduates. David McCullough, who's you know, well, well known for writing historical nonfiction, wonderful historical nonfiction, has talked about how you can't be a meaningful participant in our democracy if you have no history. We are the past. I mean, we are absolutely the result of the past. And if you want to know about our government, you, need, you can't understand it if you don't study the past. And especially those who, who just only know about history from old textbooks, which are very dry and boring and, you know, not humanizing, you know, very dehumanizing of history. I try to breathe life into characters, and I always include well-known figures from history, but I try to breathe real human breath into them. So in this book, The King's Beast, Ben Franklin winds up having a very uh, important role. And there are a lot of really interesting aspects of Franklin that aren't in the history books. Ben Franklin was really fascinating. He was kind of a rogue, but he was, he was very compassionate. He had a deep curiosity about everything. He had really odd personal habits. He had a habit that he pursued his entire life. Every morning, he got up and he would sit naked in a chair and read the newspaper for an hour. He called that his air bath. He would invite people to join him. Usually people were, <laughs> would not. But every day, and, and there's records of this in London, and I have this in my book, my protagonist was <laughs> shocked. And Franklin invites him into his bedroom, and he's sitting there naked reading a paper. And Franklin invites him to take his clothes off and join him. And it's like, <laughs> and so I love that. I mean, that, that happened to people. We know that Franklin took his air bath every day for decades. And we know that he invited people to join him. And so it's not a stretch that strangers would come in and find Ben Franklin naked in the chair. And he pursued a lot of inventions throughout his life and did all kinds of interesting things with electricity. He had um, a lot of electrical apparatus in his home in London, and he would sort of like shock people for entertainment. And, uh, you know, there were just these many, many interesting, you know, human facets of, of these characters that you don't see in the history books. You don't find history textbooks are disappearing, but even the ones that are there don't humanize our you know, historical figures this way. In this book with Franklin, he is he's living in London, and I have his address and his landlady and, the, and, and a lot of description of his household, which is available if you, you know, if you do the research. Um, and I love that stuff. And it you know, makes people come alive. And then you begin to realize, my gosh, I mean, Ben Franklin could walk through the door today and I would recognize him from the description. These really were real people. They didn't just sort of exist in a cartoon or exist in some bubble in a comic book describing an event or a timeline in some history text. They didn't live in the past. It was the present to them. 
and they were dealing with real important issues, especially you know during this period. What is your creative process like? Now I was reading that you don't do outlines. Yeah, it's always frustrating with my publishers because they'll say, you know, give us, you know, give us an outline of your next novel, and I'll say, well, here's the here's the broad, <laughs> here's the broad themes I'm going to be exploring in the novel, you know, but it's not an outline. It's not a, you know, they, you know, they're expecting like a, a some sort of a plot formula. I, so I have very strong protagonists. I know my protagonists really, really well, actually, and I think this is a really good exercise for anybody that writes a series like this. I have like a biography file of my protagonist, and I flesh out their lives and, and include details that never appear in my books. So I know them, and it's not just one protagonist in each book. There's one primary character, but then there are others that recur, like in, in the Bone Rattler series, and the, you know, the King, of which The King's Beast is the latest one. The closest friends for my protagonist, whose name is Duncan McCallum, are Native Americans. And so they're featured you know, repeatedly through the series. So I know the I know the characters. I know, like in this book, in the very early stages, I knew I was going to have a focus on these fossils, which really fascinated me. There's a lot, a lot of good, you know, inter- you know really interesting history around the fossils of this um, place called the Big Bone Lick in Kentucky when it was first discovered by Europeans, and then Indians had known about it for centuries before. But when the Europeans described it, it was this big mud flat that had a lot of sulfur fumes. Uh, you know, coming out of the ground and the bones of hundreds of animals. And now we know that many of them were mastodons, but there are also a number of other Ice Age animals that died there. And so that fascinated me. And I knew that there was a lot of interest in Europe about the, about the bones and people were asking for the bones to be brought over, to be shown to royalty. And there were a lot of people writing things about them. There had been some similar bones found in the Hudson Valley and in, the, in the prior century, and everybody had decided they were bones of giant men. My guy, Duncan McCallum, and his friends, they have no idea what the bones are. They just know they're mysterious. Duncan you know, medical, has medical training. He's fascinated by them, and he knows Ben Franklin wants them. And in fact, it's a secret mission for the Sons of Liberty to get the bones to Ben Franklin. He's not told why, and he learns through a lot of intrigue and violence that they're all part of a, of a political intrigue in London. They're very politically explosive. So with 17 novels, you obviously don't deal with writer's Brock, or do you? Well, it's all relative, I would say. Okay? Does it I exist? Mean, I, Does writer's block really exist? Well, I would say so. I mean, I, I think, yeah, there are days when I... I um, was sitting staring at me, you know, like especially when I'm editing, trying to figure out where to take a scene, make it sharper and make it more interesting. Sometimes I just don't get anywhere. I'll, I'll get through two pages when I was aiming to get through 20 pages on an edit. So I, yeah, I think it exists. When, do, when do you know that it's, it's connected? Because oftentimes... Uh writers or directors or artists, they keep going back and back and revising. When do you know that I need to cut bait? This is good. I think for most novelists, the novel was finished because it's due under a contract. So you always have that clock ticking. I'm not trying to mock the process. I know what it takes to get the novel done, and I will have a lot of, you know, much more intense writing in the, in the two months before a, a manuscript is due. No question. But 
there is a very, I think it's a very subjective judgment as to when something is ripe enough to, to pick. You know, as the writer, as the author, you know this character, you know how you want this character to feel, what type of emotional and the, how intense the emotions will be in this scene, how they should be, and that you're trying to convey this point out of the mouth of this person. And, and it, it comes back to authenticity, but not, you know, it's not just authenticity. Factually, it's being authentic to the characters and authentic to, to uh, you know, the broader goal of the book. Who sets the goal for you for a year a book? Is that your publisher or you just do that? That's you're driven to do that. So the publishers prefer that, right? When, especially when you write a series. And so I, I, I agree to it in contracts, right? It's a mutual thing. I mean, I know what I'm getting into, but I, you know, I always have contracts out, you know, for my, my books and, and um, I'm driven to meet the deadlines. Sometimes I'll be doing the final edit of a book when I have to be writing another book, and that can get pretty confusing, but <laughs> it's happened. What motivates you? I want to get these messages out there. Um, I have a lot of deep, you know, you know, deep satisfaction of, of sort of the job well done when I get you know, a book finally in print. I think it really is important to get these, these messages about history out there and to get people excited about history in, in new ways. That's a big motivation. From a broader literary sense, I very much worry that people are moving away from the written word. And in my experience, there is a lot of intellectual curiosity that's kind of being wasted these days. It could be much more constructively used by picking up a good book. Uh, you know, and there's and there's a, there's encouraging signs, you know, along these lines. You know, the quality of mysteries, and this is something that I, you know, that, that affects me. And I mean, a lot. I find there are reviewers and and uh, and and even bookstore owners that sort of traditionally have put uh, mysteries off, you know, sort of in a side niche. Uh, and and I've had people t tell me, you know, I was in an appearance in Boston a couple of years ago where a woman came up and said, God, you're such a good writer. Why don't you write a real novel? <laughs> nice. Meaning, why do you just write mysteries, you know? And so, you know, there's this other phenomena that I that I, I really enjoy being part of, of making mysteries more literary. You know, and I and I'm often, you know, called a you know, writer of literary mysteries. I mean, people have a hard time characterizing my books, but one of, one of the labels they give is, is literary mysteries, which is fine to me. Uh, so, look, I, I'm, I am driven by those things. I mean, they may sound, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, ambitious and vague, but, but they're important to me. Well, do you have anything else to add, Elliot? No, I think that I just, I really appreciate uh, the conversation, Mark. I think these I encourage people to go out and take a look at my books, the new ones, uh, The King's Beast, but also to, to, you know, just go look at historical fiction. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Well, thank you so much, Elliot. And we've been talking with Elliot Pattison. The name of his book is The King's Beast, A Mystery of the American Revolution, and that's going to be available on April 7th. Well, you write freehand, right? You actually get a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil and Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. For the first drafts. Yeah. yeah. I find, I mean, that's what I do. You know, of course I'm an, you know, from an older generation and, and that seems natural to me. I'm constantly editing so that then when it goes into the word processor, 
I'm changing it as I enter it. But yes, I do very much uh, have the manual process. I mean, I was flying across the Atlantic a couple years ago, and after we landed at Heathrow, a guy near me, the row behind me, says, you know, everybody in here, unless if they weren't asleep, they were working on their laptops or iPads, and you're the only guy in this whole section of the aircraft that was actually writing something. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. I said, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's who, you know, that's who I am, right? <laughs> well, do, well, does it engage a different part of the brain because it's a different process altogether? Writing with your hand and a pen or typing it does mark. If you look at the really interesting studies out about in the elementary schools now, a lot of cla- a lot of uh, schools are not teaching handwriting to their students and they're finding a lot of interesting connections, mostly negative connections in terms of the way the brain works when, when uh, children are not, are not learning to write. Or to put it another way, the children that learn to write have a lot more synapses firing when the, in, the, in their learning process than the other ones. There's a certain physical satisfaction you know, to be had. All right, Elliot, thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Just a reminder, Elliot Pattison's The King's Beast, A Mystery of the American Revolution, is available on Amazon.com. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon.